Welcome to the BJA Education Podcast. Welcome to the August edition of the BJA Education Podcast. I'm Cliff Shelton. And I'm Benj Marriage. This month's podcast concerns the clinical conduct of total intravenous anaesthesia, which was found to be associated with a higher incidence of awareness in the NAP5 report the authors of which concluded that whilst all anaesthetists need to be skilled in the administration of intravenous anaesthesia, their results suggested that this was not currently the case. This podcast is therefore relevant to listeners in that it addresses some of the clinical difficulties in administering TIVA. Cliff went to talk to Dr David Mulvey from Royal Derby Hospital about his article Principles of Total Intravenous Anaesthesia, Practical Aspects of Using TIVA, published in the August edition of BJA Education. So I'm here in Derby with Dr Dave Mulvey. He's a uh, consultant anaesthetist at Royal Derby Hospital and also a committee member of SEVA, the Society for Intravenous Anaesthesia. He's been using TIVA since the turn of the millennium and um, I think it would be fair to describe him as an enthusiast of the technique. He's published two papers in BJA Education, uh, one in March, which some of the listeners hopefully have already read, and one in this month's August edition on principles of total intravenous anaesthesia, practical aspects of using TIVA. So thank you very much, Dave, for um, uh, agreeing to speak to us. I'm sure the listeners will find this podcast very informative. So to start off with, you talk in your article about ideal TIVA. Can you explain this concept? Certainly. I think TIVA has the problem in that there's no internationally recognised definition of what constitutes the optimal technique. And this contrasts, say, with using volatile anaesthesia, where it's very simple to say that you need to be showing at least one Mac on your monitoring device. Personally, my own belief would be that when using TIVA, you should be using a co-administration of separate target-controlled infusions of propofol and remifentanil to achieve unresponsiveness in your patient. And if you wanted to take the definition further, I would say you need to have that unresponsiveness backed up with an EEG device that is showing uh, basically delta waves on the waveform part of the monitor. And this would coincide with the uh, abyss, if you want to use that terminology, of round about 40 or maybe slightly below. What are the indications for using a TIVA technique? Well, I I highlighted some of those in the uh, March 2016 uh, paper. But I think a few things have come to light since. Uh, There was a very interesting article by Wigmore and colleagues who are based at the Royal Marsden Hospital. And they've had a look retrospectively at 7,500 patients undergoing major cancer surgery. And put very simply, the patients who had TIVA anaesthesia showed a much better survival rate compared to those having volatiles. And this, in my view, means we should at the very least, be looking very seriously at whether or not TIVA is an optimal optimal technique in major cancer surgery. As we all know, there are various pharmacokinetic models for propofol TCI. Um, What are the principal differences between the models? Um, In practice, uh, probably less than people think. 
it's largely a difference be behind the complexity with which the model was developed and, if you like, the amount of supercomputing that was available to the investigators in order to uh, find all the different parameters that might influence uh, the final concentration that, that you want to achieve. And I suspect too many clinical colleagues worry about the differences between the models instead of just thinking about what effect they produce. Of the available models then, which do you use in your practice? Well, because I, I, I'm mainly an adult anaesthetist, uh, I use the plasma-targeted MARSH model and the effect site-targeted Minto model. But this is determined mainly by the availability of these models on the devices that my trust has purchased. And of all the models that are actually available in the literature, there are relatively few that have received a European standardised kite marking type uh, stamp of approval. And understandably, the manufacturers are extremely reluctant to put anything that's non-standard into their devices. So the choice is really limited by this pragmatism rather than because one model is better than another. On those rare occasions when I have to uh, be involved with a paediatric trauma case, I would use the Pedfuser model because that is designed for paediatric patients. In your article, you discuss clinical calibration of depth of anaesthesia. What's an appropriate endpoint for um, clinical assessment of anaesthetic depth in TIVA? Now, I think we need to define what our end objective is. And for me personally, it's not the fact that the patient shuts their eyes or uh, doesn't respond to me flicking their eyelash. For in my practice, I am not satisfied that the patient is adequately anaesthetized and ready for airway manipulation until they can re resist a sort of 15 to 20 second sustained jaw thrust where I place my fingers behind the angle of the mandible and really push incredibly hard. If my patient responds at that point, I know that those brain concentrations, however high or low they happen to be, are inadequate and I will turn the targets up. I have a further calibration point when I then intubate the patient or instrument the airway in some other way. In many patients in whom you have overdosed them with, the, with uh, that combination of drugs, the patient will actually become bradycardic upon laryngoscopy. It's quite surprising to hear because it's not what we typically see in volatile practice. But that for me is an indicator that the patient is too deep. And certainly if I was to look at an EEG device at that point, I'd quite often see a degree of burst suppression on the waveform or see a number below uh, the marker of 40. So I then know that somewhere between uh, the number at which my patient resisted the jaw thrust and the number at which the patient becomes bradycardic is about right for the most painful part of the surgical procedure. You describe in your article that there's differing opinions about whether you start the propofol and the remifentanil at the same time or whether you start them in sequence. Can you outline the controversy there? Certainly. I think possibly one way to get the listeners to the podcast thinking about this is to 
think about what you do in, in non-TIVA practice. And I would suggest to you that a lot of clinical anaesthetists now will preempt a bolus of propofol by one of the short or medium acting opiates with the intent of maximizing the synergy between the two at the point at which the maximum brain propofol concentration has been achieved. Now, similar considerations happen with using TIVA models. It is certainly possible to get a patient more rapidly unresponsive if the brain is already equilibrated with a reasonable amount of remifentanil before the propofol is started. Uh, other colleagues would say that that has too high a risk of apnea or ineffective preoxygenation and would always counsel that the drug should be started at the same time. And really, it's a matter of experience and, uh, and practice that I personally tend to preload the patients uh, with the remifentanil uh, before starting the propofol. And on to another discussion that's mentioned in your article. There are proponents of uh, high propofol, low remifentanil TIVA, and also vice versa. What are the advantages of these techniques and, and which do you use in your practice? Well, in, in general, I think the most important thing is to give enough drug so that your patient is unresponsive. And the two ways of doing this you've just outlined, you can either use a very high concentration of remifentanil with a low concentration of propofol or the vice versa. Now, I think it depends a little bit on who the patient is, what sort of procedure they're having, and uh, their, if you like, their ASA status. And certainly on patients who tend to be at the elderly end of the spectrum or have poor ASA status, I think that a low propofol, high remifentanil uh, technique is of advantage. And conversely, for the more robust patient, maybe go to the other end of the spectrum. But it also depends a little bit on the type of surgery and whether or not you're able to utilize some form of loco-regional technique as part of your overall uh, anesthetic management. Uh, one disadvantage of using a high remifentanil concentration, I believe, is that the patients are more prone to, to uh, be in pain at the end of the procedure, almost irrespective of any other morphine or other uh, analgesic that you, you give them. So I think if you are able to utilize a, a loco-regional technique, then the uh, combination of the low propofol, high remifentanil uh, process is probably uh, more advantageous. And if you're not able to use a, a regional technique, would you advocate higher remifentanil, lower propofol? Or? Well, it, it is a difficult one because, again, it depends on if your patient's a day case or if they're, they're planned to be a, you know, a, an inpatient or whatever, uh, and what, what post-operative analgesic techniques are available to you. Mm. Uh, certainly, I think in day case practice, there would be a tendency to use the low propofol, high remifentanil uh, end of the spectrum, uh, but acknowledging that uh, you would have to have your morphine or other analgesic cogenas uh, in place and uh, working very early on in your anaesthetic management to try and minimize post-operative um, pain. The recent NAP5 report demonstrated that there was a, an increased rate of awareness 
under total intravenous anaesthesia. How would we, or how should we, minimise the risks of this occurring? Well, I think I would have to start answering that question by by saying that the definition of TIVA in that report would not coincide with what I am suggesting to the listeners would be the ideal technique. I think that's quite important to understand at the start. I think it's also important to understand that none of the NAP5 TIVA in quotation marks uh, cases were due to failure of the pharmacokinetic models that are typically used and that I am advocating that listeners should use. Having said that, I think the importance of the NAP5 uh, data is to highlight that perhaps the anaesthetic body does not have as much knowledge about infusion anaesthesia as possibly uh, we believe that we have. And I think we should take these results as a wake-up message uh, to understand that we need to, uh, to address our needs um, on, on, a, on a more thorough basis. To specifically answer your question, uh, I think that the main danger areas that are highlighted in the NAP5 TIVA cases pertain to neuromuscular blockade, the use and abuse of neuromuscular blockade, as was found with the volatile section of the report, but also this lack of understanding of how rapidly uh, propofol infusions actually enter the brain and become effective, particularly when swapping from a volatile technique to uh, a TIVA-type technique at, say, transferring a patient to scanner or to the intensive care unit uh, at the end of a, a procedure. And I think they're the two key areas where we really need to address practice. And you mentioned in your article that TIVA actually offers some theoretical benefits in terms of awareness, in terms of no gap between induction and then intubation and then transfer. Do you think that if the educational message that you've just talked about was uh, was acted upon, TIVA might actually be associated with less awareness than, than volatile anaesthesia. I, th- I think in the ideal world, you, you, you would be correct. However, something else we have to recognise from NAP5 is the susceptibility of even an ideal TIVA technique to technical failure. And I think uh, in an ideal world, we would have no technical failures uh, using TIVA. But in the real world, they will always be dislodged cannulae. There will always be um, miscalculation of drug concentrations or misplacement of syringes into the wrong pump. So while I think it's theoretically possible to eliminate awareness, I'm concerned that the, the technical failure aspects would catch up with us. And there's some really useful tips in your article about what to do with a pump failure, isn't there, which I would um, direct the listeners to. So coming on to sort of special considerations with TIVA, um, we've mentioned uh, sort of elderly and frail people a little bit already, but um, how do you alter your practice for, say, elderly people or obese people when you use TIVA? Well, for, for the elderly, I think... The, it, the, it's even more unpredictable how they will respond to any particular target concentration that uh, you choose to use for them. 
So I think if you're particularly concerned about your elderly patient, the best thing to do is use an incremented target approach. So you start at a very low number like one and then go up in stages, allowing a reasonable amount of time between each increment to see how well your patient will or will not respond to the dose. Uh, and I would also say in any elderly patient, you would always have to have your vasoconstrictors to hand because the unpredictability of elderly people to all intravenous drugs, as, as, as all the listeners will know, is, uh, is unpredictable. So I think a slowly incremented approach to the elderly or the frail is the optimal approach. The issue with obese patients is particularly interesting uh, I would have to agree with the Society of Bariatric Anesthesia who suggest a methodology in their, their website, which I would direct listeners to uh, go and have a look at. But from my own personal practice, my concerns with the obese is that we give them enough drug during the maintenance phase of anesthesia. Now, because the fat... Uh, sucks propofol out of the bloodstream. I personally believe we should be using a methodology that gives the patient the highest infusion rates at this point in the surgery. And for me personally, I believe that using a Marsh plasma targeted model uh, achieves this end. And with a certain amount of adjustment to an ideal body mass as per Servin's calculation, which is outlined in the article. And the idea of adjusting the body mass is to limit the induction dose, but whilst maintaining a fairly high maintenance dose. Now, I think irrespective of the model that you choose, there are two things about the obese. I would suggest to you that they're the patient group for whom EG monitoring is most useful, both to prevent excess dosing and underdosing. But also, I think that uh, one must accept that obese patients, particularly morbidly obese patients, are more likely to arouse slowly from TIVA anesthesia than perhaps, say, with desflurane. So what are the considerations then in general when managing the emergence of a patient anaesthetised with TIVA? I think it surprises most novice anaesthetists at how relatively stress-free it is for both the patient and the anaesthetist. And I have to say, in all my years, I am yet to see a patient develop laryngospasm upon removal of the endotracheal tube at the end of a TIVA anaesthetic I think one of the things that can be that can catch out the novice is there can be residual amounts of remifentanil in the patient's brain, which uh, may render them apneic when the stress of the tube being in place is removed. And I, th- I always advocate that in the first five minutes after extubation, the patient is continuously prodded and reminded to uh, to breathe deeply. Uh, particularly if they've had a, a fairly decent dose of morphine at an appropriate time during the case. I, I would always prefer to extubate difficult airway cases uh, following TIVA 
just because of the smoothness and the ease and the lack of laryngospasm and the lack of hypoxia. And, and you mentioned giving a, a, a decent dose of morphine. Mm. Hyperalgesia is known to be a, a potential problem with remifentanil infusions. Mm. Have you got any suggestions as to how to mitigate that? Well, I, I, even going back to 2004, there's a paper suggesting that the morphine has to be given at least 40 minutes before turning off a, a remifentanil infusion. Mm. And the doses suggested by those authors were as high as 0.3 milligrams per kilo. I think also one can think to drugs such as ketamine and the non-steroidals, again, to try and provide a platform upon which the long-acting opiate has a chance to uh, uh, offset um, uh, the effect of the remifentanil upregulation. There is a recent paper suggesting that the remifentanil can be stepped down towards the end of the case, uh, but I think in novice hands one has to be careful at that, otherwise uh, there is a risk of uh, awareness uh, because of the synergy. You're suddenly taking away the synergy between the propofol and the remifentanil. And I think one has to be very careful with that technique if, if you're not an expert. So finally, a, a recent paper in the Royal College Bulletin by McGlone and Peck called for increased attention to competency-based training in TIVA. What's your take on, on that? Well, we're actually very grateful to those authors for... Uh, highlighting, if you like, from outside of a specialist society uh, what is perceived and we have demonstrated in a number of our annual scientific meetings to be a complete dearth of formal teaching of, of TIVA TCI methodology. Um, SIVA has attempted through seminars and teaching days over the years to try and redress some of that balance but I suspect that it needs a more formal approach from uh, those who are in charge of, of educational uh, needs of, of um, training anaesthetists in this country. Certainly, SIVA has independently formulated a, a proposal for a competency framework, and we are... Uh, in some ways, test testing this in a number of centres around the country just to see if it works and whether it's practicable. But of course, it is absolutely the purview of the Royal College to decide whether any sort of formal approach to this problem uh, is mandated in the syllabus. Dr Dave Mulvey, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. So thanks to David and Cliff for an interesting discussion. I'm sure that listeners will find that useful in their day-to-day -day practice. Remember to check out the article in the August edition, as well as David's previous article on the pharmacokinetics of TIVA, which was published in March 2016. Next month, we hope to bring you two podcasts for the price of one. Dr Naveen Iep will be discussing the use of IV lidocaine in acute pain, and Dr Alistair Glossop will be talking about non-invasive ventilation in the perioperative period. Thank you for listening to the BJA Education Podcast.